want to move into the book of Job and bring us into the tensions we experience with God. Primarily, the question we want to ask this morning is, does God care? I had a weird week. Engine in my car died. Had the extended warranty, but now the car people want to see my oil changer seats. Do I look like the kind of guy who keeps his oil changer seats? No. Uh, so that's troubling me. And then on Friday morning, I woke up and it was 8.40, about to send my kids to school. And I spotted my dog, Lloyd, chewing on something on the floor. And lo and behold, it was my pair of prescription sunglasses. And I grew angry and started yelling at my dog. And I said, I'm going to crucify you. You know, you're the kid of a pastor when crucifixion is the threat on hand there but I was very upset at my dog and the kids are crying I sent them off to school crying and they're like please don't kill him before we get home I'm like we'll see I'm angry and then the kids go off to school I'm like oh I need to I need to pray because I'm worked up I'm angry and that was bad I shouldn't have done that with the kids but they saw me angry you just go, oh God, I need a break. All these little things in life, they add up. And, and then you have a moment like yesterday, where I'm sure some of you, like me, watched on the news as Israel returns to war. And you watch live on camera as people are being kidnapped in the thick of it. And you go, oh, my petty concerns about sunglasses and engines and... Oh. From all the way from war, though, to our petty concerns, does God care? And we want to move for the next month into this series on our tensions with God. And over the course of the next month, we're going to ask questions. Is God cruel? Is God angry? Is God fair? But the one we want to start with this morning is, does God actually care? Now, I know what you're thinking. Brilliant question, Brad. We're in a church. Let me guess how this sermon ends. Well... You're right. You probably know where this is going in the end. But I want to try to take the question seriously because at least one book in Scripture does, the book of Job. Does God care? Now, I should say to properly frame this question, we should acknowledge two things to begin. The first is this. The universe doesn't care about us. I once read a famous mountain climber who said, uh, anyone who thinks the universe cares, hasn't climbed a mountain, hasn't traversed in the wilderness. And we saw crazy news again this week. Two hikers, backcountry in Banff, attacked and killed by a predatory grizzly bear. You think, oh, it's lovely to be out in nature. Yes, but there are things out there that don't care. They'll eat you. So the universe doesn't care. The second thing, this one's even a little bit more disturbing, the overwhelming majority of people also don't care. You don't care about my engine or my sunglasses, right? Most people don't care because they're dealing with their own challenges and stresses and sufferings. And it's not for callous hearts. We don't care about other people's troubles because we're busy thinking about our own. So the universe doesn't care. Majority of other people don't care. Does God care? And I think no story raises that question in a more interesting manner than the book of Job. And it comes to us as part of the Hebrew wisdom tradition. A tradition that is concerned largely with how do humans live wisely. 
And so it's important to remember from the beginning, this story is not intended to teach history. It's not a literal story. It's to be understood parabolically. It's an invitation to wrestle, to contemplate, to consider. And so a few things to note at the start. First, while some consider this book to be an explanation of suffering, it's not. William P. Brown says this, the book of Job offers no explanation for suffering even as it provocatively sets up the question. This is critical. Nowhere in scripture is there anywhere that tries to explain suffering. It's just a given. In fact, the book itself will make the argument that trying to explain suffering in the world is a problem. Suffering exists, but does God care about it? From our own personal petty struggles to the Middle East and Ukraine, does God care? Well, If explaining suffering is not the goal of the book, what is? Richard Middleton, fantastic book on Job, says this. The question of the book seems to be whether God approves of Job's abrasive complaints about his suffering. Is protesting to God or about God concerning one's circumstances viewed in the book of Job as a form of speech that manifests wisdom? It speaks to a larger question. When tragedy befalls us, when the world does not seem just, when even God seems not to be acting in character, what should our response be? Intriguing. What does the wise person say to God in the midst of suffering? Well, the story begins with a provocation. God and Satan make a bet. It's a clever hook as an intro. We've got a little wager to start the book. It's just a hook. But God says to Satan, hey, have you seen this fellow Job? He loves me. He's fantastic. He's the best. And Satan says, well, that's because you've given him a cushy life. He's got all wealth. He's got a beautiful family. Of course he loves you. He's never had to feel any pain. So God's like, well, what are you trying to get at? Satan's like, let me take all that away from him, and I guarantee he curses you. God's like, what are you, 20, 30? What are we betting on this? Let's do it. So the bet takes place. Satan goes to Job. His kids are all killed in a tornado. His livestock is all killed in some thing. All of his wealth is gone. It's a provocative way to set up the story. Okay, now let's see what happens. The question of God is firmly put into view here. It's a clever hook. How does God see the world? Is God making bets on humanity? Are we just playthings to God? Maybe this God doesn't care at all about you, and maybe your successes and trials in life are just a form of entertainment to God, something God can make bets on. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, Zelda. Okay, all right, this is going to go over real good. (laughs) In the latest iteration of the video game, there are these characters called Korra's. And they're helpless. They just sit around going, hey, can you help me? Can you pick me up and move me from here to there? And if you do, you get a little prize, whatever. Now, I don't know if the game makers knew this, but these helpless creatures, one of the phenomenons online recently is people have begun torturing them. Because they can do nothing, people, video game gods, pick up these Korak seeds, they're, they're crucifying them. They're putting them as spits over to fight. Look at the corks like, ouchie, he's being burned on a crucifixion stake because they're just so helpless. 
And people are like, well, if they can't do anything, we might as well torture them, attach them to rockets, do some worst case scenario things. And part of me, it's kind of funny, yet also incredibly disturbing that people would be like, huh, let's hurt the Koroks. But to me, it sort of raises the question, does God see us like a video game master going, huh, let's inflict a little pain, see what happens. I don't know. But the, the, the story of Job provocatively sets up that question. Maybe we're just playthings to God, somebody to make a bet on. Job learns that his wealth has been taken from him. He learns his family has been taken from him. And then he utters the words that would be turned into a very famous worship song. He learns this news, and then he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Anyone familiar with church will know this worship song. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name gives and takes away. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. <laughs> In some ways, to me, this is like the Korak character going, Hey, sometimes you help me, and sometimes you burn me at the stake. But blessed be the video game maker, no matter what. Sometimes you help me, sometimes you hurt me. You're God. Praise your name. What's interesting to me about this is this line comes immediately after Job learns of his first losses. And Job hasn't had time to dwell or reflect on them. And considering what comes later in the book, it's strange to me that we would take this line from Job chapter 1 and turn it into our favorite worship song. Because the plot of the book has yet to unfold, and Job has a whole lot more to say later on. In fact, given what comes later, it seems obvious that what Job is trying to do here is what many people of faith try to do. I've got to put a brave face on. I'm going to put a brave face on in the face of my suffering, discount all of it, and just say, you know what, I'm here to worship no matter what. So he tries that, but then Satan comes back to God. God's like, ha, told you, he'd still praise me. And Satan says, ah, let's take this one step further, because of course Job will keep praising you as long as he doesn't suffer personally. You can take anything from a human, but as long as you don't make them suffer personally, uh, they'll be fine. So God says, let's double down. Double or nothing? Let's do it. Boom. He's given permission, Satan, to make Job suffer physically. And so Job is covered in boils. And in that moment, his wife comes to him and says, forget your integrity, just curse God and die. Well, Job had the brave face on. Now, he's suffering personally. The parable is now set to unfold. Job's friends show up, and this is key. The very first thing they do is sit in silence for seven days. It's a long time. Silence for seven days, reflecting, brooding, processing. And when Job finally breaks his silence, his tone has drastically changed. He's angry. He's not singing worship songs after seven days. He's angry. 
And throughout the following 36 chapters, Job is incredibly bold in his speech. Middleson says this, Job explodes into a passionate malediction and utters a torrent of audacious words. His outburst is like an X-rated lament song. See, after having some time to process his PTSD, Job is no longer content with a God who gives and takes away. He's no longer content with a God who gives good and trouble. And Job has some pointed question he wants answers to. He laments and complains, God, you don't seem to care. What has happened to me is unjust. I don't deserve this. I deserve an explanation. And the heart of the matter is now ready for discussion. Is Job right to boldly, to God's face, say, you're in the wrong here. This is not just. I'm complaining about my suffering. And for 36 long chapters, we get some really long-winded speeches from Job and his friends. The majority of the book, in the next this week, they only asked you to read Job 1 to 3 and then the end, because the middle is so boring. It's so boring. It's just long-winded drivel from his friends about why Job is wrong. And these speeches are so long, you almost want to start booing his friends, like, boo, sit down. I actually had that experience last weekend. Uh, my friend Riley's wedding, I was asked to give a speech with someone else. I don't like having to give speech with someone else because then eh, I got to own their stuff too. And it was a difficult day because we had our kilts on and the piper before the service had said, ah, you must not have anything between you and your tartan. So the underwear had to go, fair enough. But we're at the head table, a little elevated, and the whole meal, I keep getting stink eye from Kristen. Don't know how to sit well in kilts, I guess. But finally, it's time for our speech. We get up there, and I've got to be honest, we're killing it. We're killing it. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's having a good time. And then we're going on. It's 15, 20 minutes. Then my friend John, I have to deal with his stuff. He made a rather poor in poor taste joke. And the crowd went, oh. And in that moment, he backed up, surprised, and the piper had left his pipe on the ground, and he stepped on the pipe and broke it, so he got a <laughs> And then the piper's like, my pipes! And everyone started booing. Boo! Boo! And the piper ran off with his pipes, and my friend John ran off to say he's sorry, and I'm stuck in front of a crowd going, well, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And I still had half my speech left to go. And they were like, boo, I'm like, oh, oh. Anyway, I wrapped that one up real quick. But um, long-winded speeches, that's what we're given. It just goes on and on. There's three friends, and they all make the same point. And then inexplicably at the end, a four friend shows up and says the exact same thing that the other three, it's just intolerable. But at the heart of the book is the question, is Job right to talk so harshly to God? For Job, his theology was this, God is the root cause of all things both good and ill. But since Job has done nothing wrong, he can't understand why he's being made to suffer. And Job's friends have a similar, albeit 
different theology. They seem to accept some version of a, a causal relationship between sin and suffering. You suffer, Job, they say, because you've done something wrong. And for them, suffering is self-inflicted. Furthermore, Job, we humans are dirt. We're worms. We're basically nothing. We're insignificant, so you need to learn to keep your mouth shut. The majority of the book is just them back and forth, back and forth. But finally, in chapter 38, we hear from God. God arrives to settle the debate. And this speech is epic. Now, for brevity's sake, it's like four chapters long. I've taken just a few of my favorite lines. But finally, God comes in a whirlwind and decides to speak. It goes this way. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Read there, when I laid the earth's foundations, tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched your measuring line across it? Who shut up the sea behind doors? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning, or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Surely you do, for you're already born. You've lived so many years, Job. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? What is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? Does the rain have a father? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wonder about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Ooh. God is coming with some fire here. That last line is bold. I love it. Job, little fella. You wanted to step in the ring with me? You sure about that? You sure you want to wrestle, Job? Because I'm bringing a whole lot of heat to the ring. Or that's how it sounds. You sure you want to wrestle? I had another incident Ron Riley's wedding. We're, we're very close friends, so I've sworn allegiance to him and his family. Because I'm a loyal guy and my friends. And the problem is McLaren. The McLaren name means in spite of the McGregors. And as the story goes, as Riley has told me, way back, hundreds of years ago, a McGregor walked up to McLaren with a dead fish and slapped him in the face. And ever since then, the McLarens and the McGregors have been at odds. And I was tasked with picking up the kilts. I'm in picking up the kilts, and behind me I hear a man go, Keith McGregor, to pick up his kilt. I said, this is my time to shine. <laughs> I said, McGregor! 
I got at some words with you. And this man turned around and was a bulking human being. And I said, let me tell you the funniest story. <laughs> and I told him, and he said to me, he said, uh, when you get to the wedding, here's what I want you to do. Take a fish with you and do what a good McGregor would do. Ooh, I wasn't going to show up and slap my friend with a fish, but look at this guy. I asked Sarah, look at him. <laughs> now, I said pointedly to Sarah this morning, does he look tough? And she said, no, not really. I said, does he look tougher than me? She's like, oh, yeah, that's obvious. <laughs> you don't want to mess with that McGregor. You've got to be careful who you get in the ring with. And it's as if here God is saying, are you sure about this, Job? Are you sure you want to get in the ring? Well, what are we to make of this? Because it sounds like God is just trying to beat Job into submission. And whatever you think about this series of chapters, it's poetic prose as its finest. It's just beautiful. But what is God doing here, and how does it relate with our tensions with God, namely whether God cares about our plight or our suffering? Now, Richard Middleton proposes that what God is doing is correcting Job and his friend's theology, his assumptions about what the world is like and the nature of God's relationship to that world. How so? Well, the point isn't so much to overcome Job here as to remind Job that God delights and cares for his creation intimately and deeply. Because what Job had thought was that God just didn't care. Was God a cruel video game maker torturing some? Did God just create the world and walk away? Job was convinced that God was merely a distant creator who creates, then walks away. But God's speech indicates otherwise. As Middleton notes, God takes an interest in various wild and weird animals and is attentive to their strange habits. God illustrates a curiosity and a delight about his own creation. I mean, when you start to read between the lines of God's speech, it's almost comical. God's reflection on the ostrich to me is just amazing. It's like, listen, Job, the ostrich, it really isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. It leaves its eggs in the sand. It has no idea. It's not a good mother because its eggs are going to get trampled. But then it's like, but Job, when the ostrich starts to run, you can't help but laugh. It's beautiful. And then Job listens and God is like, I see every deer give birth. Overwatch every mountain goat give birth. It's like I care so intimately and deeply about it all. And if I care about the deer, if I care about the mountain goat, how much more do I care for you? I see and care deeply. But if that's true, then why do we suffer so much? Well, God's speech highlights God's delight in his creation. What the speech also highlights is this. God is not one to micromanage the cosmos. God's care for creatures does not entail his precise control of them. God is involved with creatures, but gives them significant freedom to be themselves, even to be their wild and quirky selves. This freedom God grants creatures includes their vulnerability so that the strength, dignity, and beauty of various wild animals are intertwined with the realities of struggle and death from which God does not automatically protect them. God is implicitly correcting Job's assumptions of a tic-tac-toe consequence structure to the universe. So God shows up and says to Job and his friends, you think the world operates on an action consequence level, but that's not the case. 
For Job, he had done no wrong. So he was like, I didn't do anything wrong. Therefore, the consequence should not be suffering. His consequences made no sense. Job's friends, on the other hand, they're like, you've done something wrong. So obviously, this is why you're suffering. But as Terence Freedom explains, for all the world's order and coherence, it doesn't run like a machine. A certain randomness, ambiguity, unpredictability in play characterize its complex life. To me, this is the heart of the matter, though it comes with its own set of problems. The book of Job is trying to communicate clearly to us that God does care and cares deeply about us, our little petty struggles, our significant suffering. God cares about it all, but won't micromanage the universe. And while I find it to be comforting that God cares, that God doesn't micromanage the universe, that sucks sometimes. From small things like, God, would you please make it so we can be in the Conrad Center next week? Like, make it happen. That's like, hey, sometimes symphonies go out of business. And you get stuck behind red tape at the city level. Or, God, what's this going on in the Middle East in Ukraine? And it's like, what we want so often is a God that we can tame and we can get to manipulate the world in our favor. And God says, you don't get that. But I do care. And so God responds in poetic brilliance. Yes, I love and care for all creation, but I won't micromanage it. Given creatures, humanity, freedom to be our wild and quirky selves. And the interesting thing is this would be a nice place to end the book, but God seems bothered by something. At the end of God's speech, his first speech, Job is rendered mute. He no longer has anything to say. Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. And this is where the central question of the book comes into play. What should a wise or righteous person say about or to God in the face of suffering? Because if God only wants submissive silence and obedience from humans, then boom, let's end the book right here. This is great. Job's like, whoop, my bad. I'm quiet. But God has spoken and he's bothered here. No, no, no. No, no, I don't want silence. When God asked Job for an answer, God wasn't joking. And I think the point of the book, or one of the points of the book is this. God is not looking for silence and unquestioning obedience. God desires a worthy dialogue partner. What God wants, it seems, are humans who are willing, like Jacob, like Job, to get into the ring and wrestle. God doesn't want silence. God wants partners who will dialogue. And so God jumps back in. Oh, you're quiet, are you, Job? No, 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 no. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself, man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And God launches into a second speech, very similar to the first one. And then finally at the end, Job gets it. Ah, then Job replied to the Lord. I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Ooh, let's, mm, we're going to deal with that last sentence there. 
Before we do, though, what Job realizes is that even in the midst of his suffering, he's made a few mistakes. He had assumed God ruled the cosmos unjustly, but now he comes to understand that the wonders he was previously unaware of, namely that God celebrates the wildness of creation. Job has finally understood the point of God's challenge, that the creator God actually wanted a response from him. He wasn't trying to bully him out of the ring. He was trying to taunt him into the ring. Let's go. Let's wrestle. Why then, though, does Job say at the end, I repent in dust and ashes? Um, Middleton says most contemporary biblical scholars are not satisfied with the rendering found in standard published translations. The better way it goes is this. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I retract and am comforted about dust and ashes. Dang, that reads differently. Job is not repenting of accusing God. He's repenting for being silent. My bad, I should have got in and wrestled with you. Retracting that in the face of God's questions for him, he didn't respond. According to Middleton, he's come to accept that the fragile nature of the human condition with all its suffering is not incompatible with the royal dignity and importance of humanity in God's sight. Evident in God's willingness both to hear Job's complaint and to answer him. Despite being dust and ashes, he has been heard and taken seriously by the creator of the cosmos. The book of Job suggests that between the extremes of blessing God explicitly and cursing God, there's the viable option of an honest, forthright challenge to God in prayer, which God both wants and expects of those made in the divine image. God comes not to bury Job, but precisely to praise Job. So why in the end he says of Job's friends, Hey, Job, your friends are kind of idiots. They didn't know what they were talking about. But you, Job, have done right. You know, I'm so confused about prayer. I really am. I don't know about this whole thing called prayer. I don't know what it does. But I find comfort in knowing that God wants to hear from me. And I think what we learn from both the Psalms of Lament and the book of Job is this. We are free to speak our truth to God in the face of suffering. And I've never been a fan of my truth, like what's the truth, but we talk about my truth, my experience. And what Job realizes is this, is that even though he didn't have the whole picture, what God wanted was for him to speak his truth to God. God, this sucks, this doesn't seem just, This doesn't seem fair. I'm hurting, and I want you to know about that, and I want you to know and understand. I need to know if you care. Our experiences in life, our suffering, may not be the whole picture, but in prayer, we get to own our own experience of how suffering makes us feel. And that, to me, is of some comfort. And so when we talk about prayer, we're not talking about necessarily changing God's mind, but an honest dialogue and wrestle with God. And that I can get on board with. I'm going to ask the band to come and and, and play a final song, but there's one final little tidbit I have to share with you because it makes me so excited, and I haven't noticed it until recently. Because at the end, you know, it's a parable, and at the end, uh, it's a fairy tale, right? So everything's good. Job gets back all his wealth, and he gets 10 more kids. (laughs) I'm not sure that's a blessing, but yeah. (laughs) 10 more kids. He gets seven sons and three daughters. But what's interesting is this, only the daughters are named. 
And even more perplexing is this. Job gives them an inheritance equal to the sons. This is absolutely unheard of, not only in biblical stories, but in all of ancient history. In fact, it wasn't even just sons. It was the firstborn would get everything. And here, Job spreads it out evenly and includes his three daughters. And Middleton asked the question, why? He says, has Job's experience of being ostracized and at the bottom of the social ladder, along with his protest about the injustice he has felt, profoundly impacted his ethical sensibilities and spilt over into advocacy on behalf of those suffering the injustice of patriarchy? Forty years I've been reading scripture, and I've never noticed that till this year. I've read the book of Job and been like, wow, that's a crazy story. But there at the end, this little glimmer. Well, look at that. Look at that little nugget, that little tidbit there. It doesn't explain suffering. It doesn't mean we suffer so that we can empathize with others. But all I know is this. Forty years into my journey with scripture, there are plenty of surprises. For those uh, who are keen enough to keep looking, there's plenty of surprises. And that's a delightful one right there. Dave, I'm going to hand it over to you. This is, uh, oh, doxology. So take it away, Dave.